Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message is going to come from one of our elders, Lane Hallsworth. We'll be reaching to the climax of the narrative story in Esther's book, learning how our application from this story means that we can have great confidence in God's promises, his provision, and providence. Thanks for joining us today as Lane walks us through the evidence of God's working all things together for his own purposes. Today's message is on God's providence, and if you could squeeze it into a children's sermon, Peggy, oh, that was, that was wonderful. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm sure all of you guys know what an angler fish is. It's that uh, fish with the thing that lives in the pitch black ocean, and uh, it waves the little light around, right? Little fish come over and uh, they're attracted to it or the bugs around it, whatever. Um, well, the fish come over and then wham, the angler fish, who's completely hidden in darkness, um, ambushes its prey. Well, imagine if you were that little light being dangled around the deep, dark ocean. Um, I don't know if you've ever turned a flashlight on, like when you're out in the woods and you turn a flashlight on and it's like all of a sudden, everything's looking at you. Um, so imagine being a little bite-sized morsel jiggled around in the depths of the ocean. It'd be scary. Until it was revealed that uh, you're connected to a fish with razor-sharp teeth who's ready to engulf any danger that'll come. All of a sudden, you might be okay with being jiggled around. After all, it is the fish who gives you life to begin with. There's a lot of different things to be pulled from the text we'll be in today. Um, but God kept bringing out this point of his sovereignty. Um, and specifically, <clears throat> to live just in a dark and dangerous world um, without fear of the schemes of man. Because we're connected to the source. And and to not have a goal of survival, but of service. Uh, just a quick recap of where we've been in Esther. We started with the dysfunction of sin, which leads to secularism, which is government without God, which leads to false worship. And we ended last week um, where Esther kind of jumped into the boat with both feet. Um, and faith to her God and his promise to her people. So we'll be covering chapters uh, 5 through 7 today. Um, and I, I contemplated with Ryan about reading all of them. And he reminded me it's written as a straight through story. Um, and there's really no breaks the way it was written. So we're going to read it straight through. Um, you can zone out after I read it, but this is the important part. So... Uh, bear with me. Um, so let's turn to chapter 5, and we're going to read right through chapter 7. <clears throat> and is there a page in the bulletin? I don't have it up here. 711. Page 711. <clears throat> on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes 
and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and high in spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigdana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. 
Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in my house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. (laughs) So, Cliff notes here. Um, the king's first in command, Haman, hated Mordecai the Jew 
because he didn't bow to him in awe as others did. So Haman convinced the king to make a decree to kill all of the Jews in the nation. Mordecai called on his cousin Esther, who was queen, to help. As she was the only one with access to the king, Esther reluctantly said yes, and without a way directly to the king, she went in faith, and the king coincidentally found favor in her and gave her an opening for her request. She deferred until later when Haman could be present, as he was responsible for the decree. Meanwhile, Haman became so overwhelmed with hatred for Mordecai that he devised a plan to kill him early and built a gallows to hang him on it the next day. That night, the king coincidentally found favor of Mordecai and in honoring him, humiliated Haman. Further on, Esther revealed Haman's wicked plot to the king and the king hung him on the gallows, which were built for Mordecai. <clears throat> you know, Folks like to portray God as a member of the Beatles up there singing, let it be. And I just want to say here in the book of Esther, he looks less like a member of the Beatles and more like Wyatt Earp. He's a God of justice. Uh, there, so there's a few points of observation I'd like to flesh out on faith, pride, and providence. And then we'll move on to application. First on faith, um, Faith is not flashy. Esther's act of faith, which was initiated in, with, with Mordecai in chapter 4, is in verse 1 here. Esther put on her royal robes and stood there. The king then reached out his scepter so that Esther could approach. Esther was obviously afraid to approach the king, um, for it was against the law to do so. So did she devise a crafty plan and skirt around the gate, poison the king, do this or do that? No, she did four things. First, from chapter four, she fasted. And it does not directly indicate prayer here, but it's very much implied that she did. So she prayed and she fasted and she called on her brothers and sisters to do the same. Second is she went in faith. Although she was just standing there when the king approached, her words to Mordecai in chapter 4 were, if I die, I die. You better believe that she was ready to go further. And you'd also better believe that God's seen that. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Esther knocked, and God opened the door. Third, when she got her opportunity, she didn't nail it with an eloquent answer. She deferred until later. Our YouTube age... Shows a lot of uh, flashy evangelism um, with the perfect words at the perfect time. And, you know, you watch it and you're just like, man, I wish I could do that, you know. Well, here's one of the most important moments in the history of God's people. And Esther's response was, let me think about it. 
See, our confidence is in the fish behind us. It's not in our own ability. It's okay to show human weakness. You know, most times it just shines the light greater on the king. Amen. It's most important to take that step of faith. In Matthew 10, 19-20, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Lastly, she let God work. Esther made her request of faith. And in chapter 6, verse 1, God is working in the middle of the night apart from any human interaction. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God is big. He doesn't need you lingering around, wondering whether he's working or not. Second point of observation is pride. <clears throat> Firstly, pride, pride is unquenchable. If you're on the sidelines here watching this, as Mordecai, this is the deep, dark depths of the ocean I was referring to. Imagine being Mordecai here watching this. Haman is ordering death upon his entire people. And look at Haman. He's got it going on. Let's go back again to chapter 5, verse 11 through 13. Haman had boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But here's the important part in verse 13. All this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Pride is an unquenchable fire. But that's just pagans like Haman though, right? How about you? Pride shows up in many ways, but there's one that's directly tied to this text. You see, both Haman and Mordecai are seeking to serve King Xerxes. Mordecai saved the king from assassination. But who did he do it for? Did he receive any credit for it? No, he did it for the king. And what did Haman serve the king for? He revealed it in chapter 6, verse 8. Haman told the king what he was worthy of. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Haman served the king, but inside he only wanted to be king. So here's the point. If we live to elevate ourselves, we'll never get high enough. Our pride will burn into eternity. But if we live to elevate the king... We will live for our purpose. 
and we'll find absolute satisfaction. Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Secondly, God will humble the proud. Proverbs 11.2 When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Romans 12.16 Never be wise in your own sight. Proverbs 29.23 One's pride will bring him low but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Deuteronomy 32.35 It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. Is God a God of promise? Yeah, will God do what he says? But how long? How long will our politicians steal our money and use it to spit in the face of God? How long will our brothers and sisters overseas get murdered for following Jesus? And how long will they celebrate millions of babies being taken in the womb? In due time. In due time. God is a God of promise. He is a God of justice. And it is his to avenge. The more we believe that, the less infectious pride will be. And the easier it will be to love our enemy and pray for our politicians. Because it's not ours to avenge. Lastly is providence. <sighs> providence is really big. Clearly, it's just Peggy giving her sermon today. It's, you can ask my wife. I dug pretty deep this last month in trying to grasp providence in a deeper understanding. And what I came out with is just that God is really big. <clears throat> I'll try to stay on track with Esther, but maybe just a quick note. It's okay to feel maybe a little bit dull when you read God's word. We'll never feel like we grasp all of it. The more you learn, it's the bigger God gets. You know, you grow an inch and God grows a mile. His greatness is beyond measure and his mind no one has known. Which is the point. So those verses that you're uncertain about or maybe even uneasy or uncomfortable with, go to them. Just go there. Come to Bible study. Uh, Just chat with somebody about it. Ask questions. I promise you that God's only going to get bigger. But let me read some scripture on Providence and we'll do a quick flyover. 
Matthew 8.27, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Matthew 10.29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the father. The king found favor in Esther. The king couldn't sleep and learned Mordecai's act of service in the Chronicle of Deeds. Haman is humiliated in his pride. Esther exposes Haman's intentions at the exact right time. And gallows were already built for the one found guilty. Here's what I gathered. Nothing happens outside of the Father. You can dream up Anything you want, a paint drip, a leaf fluttering, a comment made, a tree falling, injury, illness, life, and death. Every single thing. Even something that seems really bad to us. And we like to water that down sometimes. And it keeps us from getting mad at God because things just don't seem that good to us. God found favor in Esther. He showed the king of Mordecai's deeds. He exposed Haman's pride. But what about the decree to kill all the Jews? Was that within God's providence? How about Haman having ten sons, getting rich, being promoted? Was that just good luck? Remember, we're, we're reading the story at once. As Peggy mentioned, um, we're, we're walking without glasses. <laughs> when bad things happen, we need to be looking beyond our circumstances in the moment and looking up at what God is doing. But we don't want to go there. I have a good relationship with God. I don't want to ruin it, you know? We thank God for our children, our jobs, and our home. And then in the same breath, we curse the devil for our illness. But I think the point from Esther here is best summed up in Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God works all things for his purpose. God works all things for his purpose. For me at this point, that's as simple as it is. Go to a Bible study with Pastor Ryan if you want to learn more. And I hope that you do. But what does it matter? Why does providence matter? It matters because if we can grasp it, maybe we'll stop kicking the dirt and blaming the devil and start looking up for opportunities to serve the king and to be a part of him accomplishing his will. So a few points of application. Um, First on providence. 
My dad and I were riding up to Canada a few weeks ago on a fishing trip. We passed uh, Lake State or Lake Superior State University over in Sault Ste. Marie. And uh, I said, Dad, you remember when I got a scholarship to go to school there? Man, what would have happened if I'd have taken it? I wouldn't have met Chelsea at the University of Stevens Point. I wouldn't have my three children. And I likely wouldn't live or come to church here. I wouldn't have the job that I do. You ever think about that? It kind of blows your mind. The thing is, is none of it happened by chance. The decision was orchestrated by God. See, God has me living in Florence, married to Chelsea, raising Ezra, Silas, and Delta. And he has me worshiping right here at Grace, all by design. Why? And there it is. Here's my application. God has you exactly where he has put you. And by the way, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this directly implies to you as well. Here's what I ask of you. Write down a basic timeline of your life. We did a simple one for elder training, which was, um, so for each decade of your life, Use four to five bullet points under these categories. Work, who are your mentors, your family experiences, and any nodal events that took place. So work, mentors, family experience, and nodal events. By the way, when we had to do this paper for elder training, I complained. And I, I asked Ryan why I had to do this secular paper that has nothing to do with God. (laughs) And you see, it doesn't until you realize that it has only got to do with God. Which is kind of like the book of Esther. So once you do this, just read it through. Why did God do all of this? Why are you right here right now and what are you going to do for him with it second point of application is check yourself you know the best way to see how prideful you are by how easily offended you are see the world isn't proud is it I forgot it's pride month well (laughs) so how about you Are you proud? Easily offended anybody? Does somebody else's success bother you? You see, the difference between Mordecai and Haman is this. God's intervention. We as Christians are able to recognize our sin because we have in us a spirit of God. When we're being prideful, we might go on for weeks until bang. There it is, in front of our face. And we hopefully ask forgiveness and repent. Haman's spirit was dead. And he therefore had no recognition of his pride as sin. 
You see, we, lot of, we spend a lot of time trying to teach the world how to be humble. Instead, we should be showing them who God is so that their spirit may come alive and they may see something that they are entirely blind to. So there's two things to apply on pride. First is preach to a Haman. When you encounter unchecked pride, which is, as Chris mentioned, the world this whole month, don't beat a dead horse. If the spirit is dead, don't beat it with something the world would also offer. Unless their spirit comes to life, you're beating a dead horse. Speak the life of the gospel and pray that it finds root. Second is if you find yourself being offended by somebody or something, just check it. My dad was a boxer. And every once in a while, you can still catch him in the yard, shadow boxing. I'm sure you've seen this before where fighters will practice against an invisible opponent. When our pride is in Jesus Christ, the enemy has no target. They can swing at us, but if our pride is in the Father, we're shadows. And they can't touch him. You see, the bigger your pride is, the bigger target you will be. And the more pain you're going to feel. Lastly is go in faith without fear. Give God a chance to wow you. And there's times when that's really scary. You know those little things that float around the depths of the ocean? Uh, plankton. You know, what's, you know what eats plankton? Everything. <laughs> Everything in the ocean eats plankton. If you're a plankton, you have no hope. You're basically tossed to and fro until something devours you. Well, you know that little dangly thing on an anglerfish kind of looks like a plankton. It's just a little morsel bite, but it has no reason for fear. Why? Because it is a tool for one who is to be feared. The light never leaves the source. The fish is always using it. And you know that's us. You don't go to work and step outside of God's providence. Think about that. When a politician makes a decision, that's not outside of God's providence. So shouldn't we be talking more about God and less about politics? When something doesn't go right at work, that isn't outside of God's providence. So shouldn't we be employees who don't grumble about pay, but serve our company with intention and energy? I can tell you what Mordecai's reaction was when he found out his entire people were sentenced to death. And it wasn't picketing, retaliation, or whining. It was fasting and prayer and actionable faith. 
My hope is our reactions to trials will not be so much like the world, but that they will be radically different because we have confidence in the true king who turns the heart wherever he wills. So let's turn our fear into faith and our frustration into action. And let's serve the king together. If you could pray with me. Dear Lord, um, just just reveal yourself to us. Um, Help us to see your sovereignty and your inner workings of all things. For you are the king. And energize us and embolden us to serve you in faith to be bold disciples, and to be different from what the world is offering. Change us, Lord, and give us a new heart. Amen.